Cause for Action is brought to you by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform, the leading legal reform advocate in the U.S. and around the world. Learn more at instituteforlegalreform.com. Hello, and welcome to ILR's Cause for Action podcast. My name is Jennifer Dickey. I'm Associate Chief Counsel of the U.S. Chamber Litigation Center, and I'm a bit of a Supreme Court nerd. So I'm delighted to be here with you today to preview the 2022 term of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I'm joined by my former Supreme Court co-clerk, Brinton Lucas. Brinton is of counsel at Jones Day, where he specializes in appellate litigation. He's also a former assistant to the Solicitor General, where he argued a case many of this podcast listeners will be familiar with, BP versus Mayor and City Council of Baltimore. There, the Supreme Court agreed with Brinton and BP that an appellate court had jurisdiction to consider all grounds for removal of climate tort suits um, from state court, even though appellate jurisdiction was predicated on just one such ground of removal. That case was really important for getting a federal forum, and uh, Brinton continues to be involved with a lot of important Supreme Court work at Jones Day. So I'm really glad to have the opportunity to dive into this next term with you. Thanks, Jen. Great to be here as well, and thanks for inviting me on. And what a term this one promises to be. So for once, we have several really important business cases stacked up right at the beginning of the year. I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll see more as the term fills out too. So obviously the Harvard and UNC affirmative action cases are of interest to a lot of people, including businesses, but there are a lot of podcasts out there talking about those cases. So I think today we're gonna focus on some of the more traditional business docket cases that you might not have heard as much about. Uh, Brenton, I want to go ahead and ask you about the first case on my list, because I know you were involved with the big clean power plan case last term. And like deja vu, for the first argument of the term, we have another one of these big environmental cases that has been up and back to the Supreme Court. Sackett versus EPA. So the QP is what is the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States? And I'm going to be showing the chamber's bias here because the chamber filed a brief on the side of the Sacketts. And I'm just going to remind our listeners about the setup here. The federal government is telling the Sacketts that they can't build a house on their two-thirds of an acre lot without getting a Clean Water Act permit. And the reason they can't do so is because there are some wetlands on their property. And those wetlands are supposedly similarly situated to wetlands across a 30-foot-wide paved road from their property. And the wetlands across the road connect to a man-made ditch that connects to a creek that eventually connects to Priest Lake. But literally no water from the Sackett's property flows to the wetlands across the street, into the ditch, the creek, or eventually the lake. That doesn't sound like waters of the United States to the chamber. Brenton, can you tell me why that case might be trickier than it sounds and why the outcome is so important for business? Sure, so this goes back to the court's 2006 decision in, 2006 decision in Rapinos where essentially the justice fractured 414 over what is the test for determining whether a wetland is a water of the United, qualifies as waters of the United States. And Justice Scalia for a four justice plurality set forth a black bright line rule that the wetlands had to be essentially continuously adjacent to waters to the waters of the United States in order to qualify. So basically the test would be was it tough to distinguish from where the wetlands ended and the waters of the United States, say in this case, Priest Lake, began? And 
Justice Kennedy, however, concurring in the judgment, provided a different test, which was the significant nexus test, which essentially reduces to any wetlands that collectively significantly affect the waters of the United States, whether or not they're actually connected to them physically, qualify. Hence, under Justice Kennedy's approach, you could in theory reach the Sackett's property. And I think the reason why this is so important for businesses is because as Justice Kennedy acknowledged in his concurring opinion, his significant nexus test was designed to be applied on a case-by-case basis. So when it comes to companies that are trying to comply with the Clean Water Act and figure out whether the wetlands they're addressing are connected or part of the waters of the United States such they need a permit, the significant nexus test is not the most predictable thing in the world. So if the Supreme Court does end up going with Justice Scalia's Rapinos test, it could provide a lot more predictability in the marketplace. And just to like drive this home, my understanding is that it can take two years and $250,000 to get a Clean Water Act permit. For a lot of people in this country, $250,000 would buy a house. And here, you know, that's just the, the cost of the point of entry to be able to build this house. And that might not seem like a lot of money to like a big business, but actually big businesses might need Clean Water Act permits and across the country if they are dealing with um, the substantial nexus test, right? So we're looking at actually thousands, potentially millions of dollars in compliance costs. Right. And even setting aside the costs big businesses might incur in the aggregate, you're also looking at small businesses as well, where even for them, $250,000 and years stuck in regulatory limbo is not something to be sneezed at. Yeah. So that case has to do with federal authority. But there's another interesting case scheduled uh, to be heard in October about state authority, National Pork Producers Council versus Ross. So this case involves California's Proposition 12, which forbids the sale of any uncooked cut of pork when the seller knows or has reason to know or should know that the meat came from the offspring of a sow that was housed with less than 24 square feet of usable floor space. But it turns out that the vast majority of sows penned in this country are penned with less space than that. California raises only 0.13% of the nation's breeding pigs, but consumes 13% of the pork. So it's essentially going to become the rule for the country because the pork market is totally interconnected and farmers do not know where any particular pig's meat will be sold. And the question in the case is whether Proposition 12 violates the Dormant Commerce Clause or the Negative Commerce Clause, as Justice Scalia used to call it, either because it impermissibly regulates extraterritorially or because it violates pike balancing, which basically means that the burden it imposes on interstate commerce substantially outweighs any local concerns. There have been a series of these uh, Dormant Commerce Clause cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court and had cert denied. you know, I think about the search down the foie gras case um, in 2019. Brenton, you probably have other ideas, but we we have new justices, right? And this is kind of like um, what we were just talking about in Sackett. In Sackett, you have three, I think, justices still on the court from the Rapinos decision. But, you know, we got all sorts of new justices in the last five, five years. So the question is going to be how these new justices approach the Dormant Commerce Clause. Perhaps I'm an optimist, but I tend to think that the CERT grant here suggests suggest that there may now be five votes to enforce the Dormant Commerce Clause doctrine against one of these California laws. 
Uh, most of the justices on the court have shown themselves willing to strike down state statutes under the Dormant Commerce Clause precedents. Uh, our boss, of course, our former boss, accepted. Um, the Biden administration also supported the pork producers in this case, though it distinguished uh, green laws um, that it thought would be substantially justified by in-state benefits for the environment. Uh, and perhaps with other recent decisions from the the Supreme Court in mind, uh, the Biden administration's brief goes out of its way to note that when a state regulates out-of-state activity in service of a, quote-unquote, philosophical objection to the public policy of other states, that is the area where the constitutional concern with impermissible extraterritorial regulation has its greatest force. Uh, I'm curious to see how the court's going to rule whether they agree with the pork producers, whether they agree with California, whether they endorse a robust extraterritoriality principle or a more limited pike balancing holding that's maybe sort of good for this case, in this case only. Do you have any guesses, Brenton? What should the business community be rooting for in this case? So, Jen, I share your instinct that there are probably five votes to invalidate California's law here, or at least there were when they granted cert. Uh, I think... If I had to guess with all the usual caveats about the dangers of Supreme Court predictions, I'd say that I think it's more likely the court would go with some sort of extraterritoriality principle here. It seems for even for the justices who are inclined to apply the Dormant Commerce Clause precedents, I think there's a number of them who would look more favorably on a bright line rule like approach rather than engaging in sort of pure pike balancing. Uh, you know, that said, there's always a possibility that to get a narrow result and to get a coalition, they have to go and do a one-off case. Uh, but again, all this is really guesswork because this will be the first time, as you said, that we're dealing with a dormant commerce clause challenge in the court's current composition. The last one they addressed was in 2019. So this will be the first time that we see how Justices Barrett and Jackson approach the dormant commerce clause. So it's really anybody's guess at this point. In terms of what the business community should be rooting for, I think the clear answer is that a broad extraterritoriality decision would have a lot more benefits to regulated parties than a narrow pike balancing test, which could easily just be brushed off as good for one day only and that sort of case-specific decision. So I think what we should be looking for and hoping for here from the Chamber's perspective is definitely some clarity in the law when it comes to extraterritoriality. Yeah, I also wonder whether it would have benefits for reducing litigation costs where, you know, pike balancing strikes me as the kind of thing that's almost always going to go to discovery. Depending on how they rule on an extraterritoriality principle, perhaps that's something that could be decided on the papers. Good point. Yeah, I mean, here it was the pike balancing was dismissed right out, right off the gate uh, at the motion to dismiss stage, whereas... So the court may make it very, very narrow if they go the pike balancing route and just simply send it back to the lower courts to engage again. But I think you're right that a, the more rule-like of an approach the court takes here, the better, at least in terms of certainty for all involved. So rounding out October, I just want to note that the court has an interesting case about Andy Warhol and what constitutes fair use under the Copyright Act, as well as a case about the highly compensated employee exemption to the 
FLSA's overtime rules. We don't really have time to talk about those cases today, but I'm flagging them for anyone who might need to look further into those cases. And it just goes to show that we've got actually a lot of interesting business cases uh, on the docket so far that I'm just flagging those for, for listeners. Um, but looking ahead to November, there's a, pay, a pair of cases about federal jurisdiction, uh, FTC versus Axon and SEC versus Cochrane that I think are really important. Um, and here I should caveat that uh, that FTC versus Axon, I believe, was pending uh, in the civil division while I was the head of it. So uh, I, I was not involved with the cases, but I'm going to have to take a little bit more of a hands-off approach to them. So, Brenton, can you tell me a little bit what these cases are about and why they are important? Sure. So ultimately what these cases are about is when do regulated parties get to raise a structural constitutional challenge to the federal government um, when proceeding in front of agencies such as the FTC or the SEC. So, for example, I'm thinking about a claim that an administrative law judge or ALJ in either the FTC or the SEC is unconstitutionally insulated from presidential oversight. Now, the challengers in these cases say that they should be able to bring their constitutional claims like anyone else in federal court right at the get-go, rather than have to go through an agency oversight process in front of an ALJ that they think is unconstitutionally insulated. The government, by contrast, takes the position that, no, they should go through the agency administrative adjudication process. After that's been completed, then they can have their day in federal court. And one of the many reasons I think this is important for businesses everywhere is that, especially in front of agencies like the FTC and SEC, it can be highly burdensome, both in terms of time and just expenses of litigating, to go through the administrative process before you get to court. I mean, it can take years. So I think this is something to watch carefully. In my view, this is the on the merits, it reduces to whether the decision back from 2010 and Free Enterprise Fund applies to these sorts of situations or whether that case can be narrowly limited. Because there, if you recall, the Supreme Court said no for uh, constitutional challenge to removal restrictions for uh, uh, members of the PCAOB, they could proceed directly in federal court without having to go through the SEC's administrative adjudication scheme. We'll see whether the Supreme Court finds these cases distinguishable or whether it takes the free enterprise holding and it confirms that it extends more broadly. Yeah, the chamber filed a brief in uh, both of those cases sort of outlining business concerns with the administrative adjudication process in front of the FTC and the SEC. The chamber's brief said, you know, that both of those processes are heavily stacked against businesses. So really emphasize the importance of getting that federal forum. And I think it's interesting, actually, that these cases are making it to the Supreme Court now given the concerns um, of many in the business community about the current aggressive regulatory agendas at the FTC and SEC. This is uh, perhaps fortuitous timing for the business community. Uh, but there's another big jurisdiction case in November, not just uh, the federal jurisdiction case that we just talked about, but um, having to do with personal jurisdiction, Mallory versus Norfolk Southern Railway Company which asks whether the due process clause of the 14th Amendment prohibits a state from requiring a corporation to consent 
to general personal jurisdiction in the state as basically a condition of doing business there. This is an interesting one um, because if a state can do that, it's essentially an end run around the Goodyear and Daimler rule for general jurisdiction that Justice Ginsburg pioneered. And that rule is basically that a business can only be subjected to all purpose or general jurisdiction in its home, which is either its place of incorporation or its principal place of business. Otherwise, it's only subject to personal jurisdiction for claims based out of activities in the state. That rule makes a lot of sense for business. It allows businesses that work in all 50 states to kind of predict in advance what kinds of activities they're going to be uh, opening themselves up uh, to suit on in a state and where they're the predominant you know, portion of their litigation will be, which is in its place of incorporation or principal place of business. One wonders a little bit why the court even bothered um, with Goodyear and Daimler if business registration was the solution. It kind of makes those cases not that important, it seems like. Um, and most of the states to have addressed this issue seem to have adopted that reasoning, saying it can't possibly be consent to general jurisdiction because it would undermine Goodyear and Daimler. But of course, you know, the Supreme Court granted this case. Uh, so what do you think? Should businesses be worried about the Supreme about the Supreme Court's decision to hear this case? I so no, I certainly wouldn't read too much in to the cert grant here. There was a clear circuit split, uh, even post Daimler, as to whether this sort of theory could work. And so I think the court had to step in and address this question. So I wouldn't take the cert grant to signal one way or the other what it's ultimately going to do. That said, I think this is definitely a case to watch, just given the ramifications here. If the Supreme Court were to rule in the plaintiff's favor, and if the Daimler rule goes by the wayside, I think that could affect businesses, especially ones that operate in all 50 states significantly. So this is definitely one to keep our eyes on. I'm really interested to see if another justice on this court emerges as sort of the leader on the civil procedure side, because that was just such a core piece, I feel like, of Justice Ginsburg's legacy. Um, I know from our time at the court that the other justices really respected her expertise on these cases. So I, I'm going to be curious to see if someone can try to fill the shoes, and if so, who it is and what their view of personal jurisdiction is. Um, one final case that I think we should probably cover today is U.S. XREL Polanski versus Executive Health Resources. So this case hasn't been set for argument yet, but it strikes me as, again, uh, very important. Brinton, this is one of the fairly rare cases that involves a cert grant over the opposition of the Solicitor General. So why might the Supreme Court have taken this case? What should we be expecting from it? Sure. So I think the justices took this one honestly, because the circuits were all over the map over what's the test to apply when the federal government wants to come in and dismiss a KETAM suit under the False Claims Act. And just to give you a sense of how fractured they all were, while the petition was pending, the 11th Circuit, sua sponte, went on banc to re-examine its own precedent and test on this. Now, it, it may be, after all, that the various tests that are all applied by the circuits don't have a huge effect as a practical matter, but I think the justices were probably just tired of seeing these sorts of petitions and thought that they needed to clean it up. In terms so wait, Brendan, what is the test? We went, I guess we haven't told our listeners, what, what are the various tests about? Sure, so the tests are 
uh, they all go to whether the government, after it declines to pursue a False Claims Act suit and instead is, has it taken over by a private party, um, what they call a relator, whether the government can then come in and dismiss the suit in front of the court and what's the standard the courts apply to evaluate when the government wants to dismiss these suits. And so the circuits are all over the map. In one corner, the most government and I think most business friendly test is the one adopted by the DC circuit, which is basically the government has virtually unfettered discretion in terms of its decisions to dismiss these cases. And that is rooted in both textual arguments based on the statute, as well as constitutional concerns about when the government does not want a suit prosecuted in its name, allowing a private party to nonetheless pursue it. On the other side of the spectrum, you have a test adopted by the Ninth and the Tenth Circuit, which is essentially relatively lenient, but more strict than, far more strict than the you know, unfettered discretion test, which is, does this comport with sort of substantive due process principles? Is there any you know, sort of reason to be gravely concerned about the government's decision to dismiss these suits. Uh, and then in the middle, you have sort of the seventh and the third circuit. Uh, this case comes out of the third, which is, you know, basically in between, but unclear how much it differs um, as a practical matter, where it's deciding, it looks at the standard for dismissals under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 41 and analogizes there. So those are the three general sort of buckets that we're dealing with here. I, I think whatever happens, we should expect at least some clarity from the Supreme Court. So all involved don't have to joust about what the proper test is in all of these cases every time the government wants to dismiss. I, my prediction, at least optimistic prediction, is that they do go with the D.C. Circuit, which seems to avoid a lot of the questions, constitutional or otherwise, associated with saying that even when the government wants to dismiss a False Claims Act suit, the courts are going to scrutinize its decision to do so. And False Claims Act liability is a huge issue for businesses around the country. People might ask, well, how much does it really matter, this standard for government dismissal? How often does this happen? And I can say from my time in the civil division that the government does, in fact, move to dismiss some of these cases. And that is an important sort of stopgap um, sort of backstop option for business, you know, when they feel that they're being subjected to sort of a, an abusive key TAM suit is to go to the government and make their case that the that there really isn't a violation, that this is a waste of resources and um, get the government to sort of intervene to dismiss. And, you know, I've seen I've seen businesses make that case to the government. And so I think this this does have bite. If the government can't uh, can't serve that backstop, then, you know, businesses will be sort of subject to the ordinary mercy of litigation. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if they say anything else about limits on the False Claims Act and the constitutional issues kind of swirling around in the case. Yeah, I think this is definitely an interesting one and somewhat flying under the radar right now. Uh, but it's definitely one to watch, even if it just provides some more certainty in this area, which will at least save regulated parties the time and the time of having to go and brief this. That's right. Okay. So I think that's, that's a big um, bucket of cases. Uh, there are a number of important cert petitions pending 
where, you know, the chamber has participated and is hopeful that we'll see some more business cases filling out this docket. But for, you know, three months or less than half of the, the docket, this is actually a pretty good uh, lineup, I think, for business to get some answers from the Supreme Court. I want to thank you so much, Brenton, for sharing your time and your knowledge, uh, especially your time working on Supreme Court matters from the SG's office. I think that's uh, a really helpful perspective for our listeners. I want to thank uh, ILR for inviting us on and uh, encourage everyone to keep tuning in to ILR's Cause for Action podcast as they uh, present more important uh, issues for the business community. Thank you Thanks, all. Jill.